take your seat. Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. Get ready. Is anybody enjoying the Dumb and Dumber series? Is anybody reading Proverbs? I'm telling you, I've read Proverbs so many times, but focusing on it as a church, I don't know if it's like the agreement or whatever we're doing here. I'm just getting more out of it than I've ever gotten before. And so much, in fact, that I had to just kind of like stop taking notes because I would never get, my message was done, I thought, but then I kept reading Proverbs and I kept wanting to change what I was going to say because everything in Proverbs is so good and such wisdom. And I, what I found about the Bible is that um, the truths of the Bible are actually com common sense. They're actually a lot of times common sense, but they're not common sense until you know them. But then once you find out, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be doing that. Or if you're already operating in a principle of God, but you don't know that it's the principle of God, once you find out that it's in the Bible, it gives it more weight. And so you want to do it more. You want to operate in it more. And so I think that's the way God designed it. He designed the Bible so that we could understand it, so that we could learn from it, so that we can get wisdom, which is what the, the book of Proverbs is. So if you haven't started reading Proverbs, start reading it. You can still catch up. It's only like the 16th right now. So you can catch up and then catch up with everybody else. It will do you good. So the other day I was watching um, Fox News, and I saw this preview for um, a show that was coming up called The Man Who Killed Osama Bin Laden. Did anybody see that? It was like, it was like unbelievable. And I know that there was some kickback from some of the military, um, you know, different people saying that he shouldn't have shared some of the stuff that he shared. And so I'm not here to debate that. I just wanted to tell you what, what I got out of it. And so I was watching this thing on Fox, and this was the actual guy, the last guy to see Osama bin Laden alive. And it's amazing because he said he came up the stairs and he turned to his right, and he saw Osama bin Laden, who was a tall guy, using his wife as a shield. And so he shot him in the face three times. <laughs> um, so this is the guy. This is the guy that, that killed Osama bin Laden. And so he's talking about this story, and he's talking about everything from the time when he got the call where he was like, um, you know, I think in home or training somewhere to the time where he gets to Afghanistan, and now he's with all the SEALs, and they don't know what they're doing yet. They don't know where they're going. They just know that there's a thing in a nation that they need to go get and bring back. And initially they thought it was uh, Gaddafi because they were in Miami, so they thought maybe they're going to Cuba or something like that. But, but then they started talking, and they started seeing the magnitude of this thing, and they realized it was Osama bin Laden, and that's where they were going to get. And in talking with the other SEALs and the other people involved, they said that they knew that this was a one-way mission, that they were not coming back, that they were going to go kill Osama bin Laden, but that they were probably going to die as well. They thought that the, the house was going to blow up or he was going to blow up because they thought maybe he'd be strapped with explosives. And so they actually went into this mission thinking that they weren't going to return. So they were calling people, writing letters. And it was just an amazing hearing this guy talk about this. And uh, it was incredible because he was so excited to go. They said, you know, do you wish that, you know, upon hearing the news that there was like an alternative way to get him? And he said, uh, it might have relieved a little bit of stress, but I was excited to go. This is a historic thing. This is what I've been trained to do is to go take out people like him. And so he, he gets to uh, Afghanistan, and they get in the helicopters, and they're flying low. And as they, as they um, invade Pakistan, which is where Osama bin Laden's compound was, he said that they were invading enemy territory, and it was the legal right of Pakistan to shoot them down. So they had a 90-minute trip to this compound in these helicopters, and he said he was wondering what it would be like if a missile hit the helicopter. Would he die right away? Would he feel any impact? Would he see anything? This is what's going through his mind. 
because they were invading Pakistan airspace, so they could have legally been shot down. So that's what he's thinking. And then he said he started to count to a thousand, one to a thousand, and a thousand to one, just to keep his mind busy until they got there. But you need to understand, these guys were so prepared for this mission. The Navy SEALs are, are, are famous all over the world for their preparation, for their training. So, so prepared were these guys that they knew exactly what his compound looked like. They had already practiced. They built a replica of the compound where he was staying, his three-story house and, and all the surrounding um, <clears throat> yards and everything. And they had practiced going in, invading, and coming out and leaving. They knew every opening, every exit in this place, and they'd never been there before, but they had so much intelligence. They were so well prepared. It was unbelievable. In fact, this guy said that the CIA agent that told him all the intelligence said that if you want to kill Osama bin Laden, go to the third floor. That's where he's going to be. They actually knew the floor he was going to be on at the time where they were going to attack. And so this guy, because of that statement, talked his way out of being on the, the team leader for the perimeter and protecting, you know, everybody else. He talked him way, his way out of that so that he could be uh, somebody on the team that was going to go into the house and be able to have a shootout, he believed, with Osama bin Laden. Now, these guys thought that, like I said, it was going to be a one-way mission. In fact, this guy um, followed up his buddy up the stairs to the third floor, and his, the, the guy that he was with was in front of him. The guy that he was with jumped on these two women, thinking that they were strapped with explosives, thinking he's giving his life to save his friend, who could then go up and find Osama bin Laden on the third floor. So he jumps on these ladies, and they end up not being strapped, thank God. And so this guy goes up and sees Osama bin Laden for the very last time, and they took him out. My point of telling you this story is that the Navy SEALs were so well prepared that with, by the time they got there, it was almost easy. Now, I, I like this saying that says, the more you bleed in practice, the less you sweat in the game. I love it. Because it's almost like by the time you get to the game, it's easy. It's like, that was easy. All the practice that I put in was a lot harder than the actual game. And I believe in my first point today, and the title of my message is, Prepare for Battle. These Navy SEALs were so prepared for battle that it was almost easy by the time we, they got there. It almost just happened by itself. And I know everything didn't go perfectly. You know, they had, some, they had some problems, but they ended up being agile and flexible enough because they knew the area so well that they could get out. One more thing that was incredible is that after they got in and got Osama bin Laden, they actually had to leave. They still had to fly 90 minutes out of Pakistan after they had made quite a bit of noise here. And so they weren't out of the woods, and he said, he said he'd never been so happy to hear you have just entered Afghanistan. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. So I love, I love our military. I love the SEALs. Um, so my first point is, and my favorite proverb is prepare for battle. Proverbs 21, 31 says this, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. That's my favorite proverb. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. If you, can, if you can get this scripture on the inside of you, it will take pressure off of you. Because I believe that we are to work, we are to prepare like it's all up to us, but then pray like it's all up to God. So we do our part. We have a part to play, but then God delivers. God brings healing. God brings salvation. God brings blessing. But we do our part by preparing for that day of battle. So when that day comes, God's able to do what he's supposed to do. And preparation is everything. They say luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And so if you're not getting much opportunity, maybe you're not prepared. 
I went to UCLA and 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 my freshman year in baseball, I I, I was a I didn't make the starting lineup. I was kind of a utility backup guy, and so um, I made the road team. So we go on the road, and if somebody got hurt or if somebody was tired, I'd kind of fill in for him, or I might get a late inning pinch hit or pinch run or something like that. And so my sophomore year came, and all the people that started my freshman year were still there. So now they were starting my sophomore year, which means I'm not going to be playing again. And so I was a little bit bummed out, but what I didn't do was stop practicing, stop training, stop working out, stop preparing. I kept doing all of those things, in fact, probably more so than I was before because I was preparing myself for that shot because I knew if I got that shot and I performed, I might be able to stay in the game. Well, the second, the second um, game of the season, we had traveled over to Hawaii because, uh, you know, when I played at UCLA, we had to go to Hawaii four times. And so it was, it was rough. But I'm in Hawaii, the second game, and uh, our center fielder had a, an absolute cannon for, for an arm. And before the game, he was showing off. You know, you take infield before the game to practice and stuff. So he's deep in the outfield, throwing it as hard as he can, trying to show off the other team what a cannon he had. Well, he blew his arm out. Pride comes before a fall. And so he blew his arm out, and I got the chance to play the second game of the season my sophomore year, and never did I sit again. So I actually got that opportunity, but I was prepared for it, and I got to play for the rest of the game. I truly believe that if I wasn't prepared for that opportunity, I wouldn't have got lucky. So we have to, as kingdom people especially, we have to be prepared for the day of battle. We have to be in attack mode, in front foot mode, in proactive mode, in beast mode. Matthew eleven twelve 12 says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. That is an offensive mindset. That is a proactive mindset. That is a prepared mindset. To go and take the kingdom, we have to go and be offensive. Now, if you're a football fan, um, God bless you. If you're not, you need to probably become one. I'm saying that to my own wife. Um, <laughs> But if, you're, if you were to watch a football game, you will hear the announcers say that whoever has the advantage in time of possession is probably going to win the game. So whoever has the ball on offense longer than uh, the other team is probably going to win the game because what happens is if you have the ball on offense, you know where you're going. You know what play you're running because here's the deal. The offense is on the field just as long as the defense, but yet the defense is the, the side of the ball that's getting tired. Why is that? It's because defense takes more energy. It takes more effort to play defense than it does to play offense. So we need to be offensive. We need to be proactive because it takes less energy. And you will uh, more likely to overwhelm your opponent, overwhelm your, en your enemy. Now, there's something else in, in the military called rules of engagement. Rules of engagement, and I'm not here to, to debate whether it's right or wrong, is when we are not allowed to shoot at our enemy until our enemy first shoots at us. Once our enemy shoots at us, now we're, we're able to engage in the fight. Now, that is a reactive mindset. That is a defensive mindset. Defensive living opens you up to enemy attack. Because what you're saying is, I am not going to fire until I'm fired upon. That's not a way to advance the kingdom. That's not a way to advance your life. I'm telling you, we need to be proactive people because you uh, and that that starts in prayer and that starts in in doing things right doing things that the Bible says we have to do things right before we know what the results of that are going to be and we need to pray offensively I, I will I will pray healing over my, me and my family before I've ever even seen a symptom of sickness 
because I don't ever want that attack to come. I don't want to be defensive. I will pray for prosperity and blessing and protection over my family before I ever have taken any fire at all because I'm, I'm firing first. In my prayer life, I am firing first. You'll find that Christians that are constantly in crisis are ones that are reactive Christians, ones that are allowing the enemy to attack them first before they end up firing back. And so we have to be proactive people. We have to pray. So proactive people determine their future. Reactive people just wait around until the future arrives. I want to be a church. I want to be a person that determines my future by acting proactively, especially in the kingdom. If you, if you own a business or if you are an employee of a business, I guarantee you your business goal is to grow. But let's say if you are a million-dollar business but your, your, your goal is $5 million, you can't just operate at a million and get to $5 million. You have to prepare for that growth to $5 million or you're never going to get there. At this church, we, don't, we aren't preparing for 3,000 people or 2,500 people, whatever we have right now. We're actually preparing for 5,000 and 10,000. All of our systems and structures are to hold 10,000 people, not 2,500. Otherwise, we're always just going to stay at this level, and our goal is to grow. Because God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are forwardly advancing. So that's what we need to be prepared for. And we can't despise the, the, the battles that we're in right now. We can't despise the circumstances that we're facing right now. Check this out. Exodus 13, 17. This is when the Israelites have just been delivered from Egypt. And it says, then it came to pass when, when Pharaoh had let the people go, the Israelites go, and God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest, the people, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So you guys know the Israelites' uh, journey to the promised land was 11 to 14 days or something like that. It was short. And by the way, the Philistines, um, the, the Bible says, was the near way, was the close way, was the fast way to get there. But God was concerned that if the Israelites turned and saw the Philistines and they saw war, that they would retreat back to where they used to be, that they would retreat back to bondage in Egypt. Why? Because they were not battle-tested. They were not battle-ready. They were not prepared to go to war. I think that you and I can extend our stay in our wilderness, because they were in there for 40 years, if we are not prepared to go to the next level. If we aren't prepared for the opportunity, God can't take Take us there. So don't despise the battles that you might be facing right now because God might be testing you so that he can take you to where you want to be. Don't extend your time in the wilderness. Let's be prepared to move forward. The reason, the reason that God wants to know that you're willing to, to fight, the reason he might test you in a few battles and, and wants to know that if you're ready to fight is because he doesn't want to take you to the next level or take you to your destiny if you're not willing to fight to get there. Because if you're not willing to fight to get there, you won't be willing to fight to stay there. And he knows that the devil is a thief. He came to kill, steal, and destroy so that if he elevates you to the place where he's called you, he wants you to stay there. But if you're not willing to fight to stay there, the devil's just going to come and ransack your life and steal the blessing of God that he's put on your life. So God wants to test you with battles, knowing that you're battle-tested and prepared to go to the next level so he can deliver you to where he's called you to be. In Jesus' name. The second thing. I want to talk to you about today is another one of my favorite Proverbs. And my second point, for those of you taking notes, is go. That's all you got to write down. Go. And I want you to think of go as give opportunity. As an acronym of give opportunities. Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples. I think that God wants us to go into the world and give people opportunity 
to get saved. Give up people opportunity to meet Jesus because it's, it's, we are to prepare. We are to know the gospel. We are to prepare, but then it's of God to do the delivering. It's of God to do the saving. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, another one of my faves, says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and then come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you right now. I love this because it's saying don't withhold what is good if you have the power to give it right now. This is a, a scripture that challenged me years ago to, to uh, tell people when I see something good to tell them that I see something good. To encourage them on the spot. To not wait to pray for somebody when they ask for prayer, but to pray with them right there. Because it's in the power of my hand to give it right here and right now. We have to be able to give people things when it's in the power of our hand. That's what the Bible says. And, you know, it's, 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 not to, um, it's not to say whatever comes to your mind. It's to say the good things that come to your mind. My kids say whatever comes to their mind. One time we were, we, were, uh, we were talking to my neighbor, and he's an older gentleman, and when you get a little bit older, as I'm finding out, things start to sag a little bit. And, like, his neck was, was hanging a little. And, and so my son's like, my son's like, Dad, what's wrong with his neck? And he's pointing. The guy's, like, standing right there, right at him. And, and he's like, what's wrong with his neck, Dad? And I'm like, shut up, shut up. You know, and I'm, like, trying to change the subject and, like, walk while, while Becky keeps talking. I'm just, like, taking him away. That's not giving somebody something good. Don't be the person that when you come up to somebody, you're like, wow, you look tired today. Because you pretty much just said, I look like crap. Thank you. And now everybody else that I talk to is going to, I'm going to be thinking that they're looking at me thinking that I look like crap. So don't be that guy. Be the guy that's encouraging. Be the girl that's encouraging. Give them something good if it's in the power of your hand to do it. And sometimes we have to do good works in order to give opportunity. So we're not saved by good works, but other people are saved by our good works. The Bible says that in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I'll give you an example. If you are um, going down and trying to preach to like homeless people or something, because, you know, we're called to reach the poor. So we're, we're out there and we're, we're preaching. Uh, you might have better success if you give them something to eat first. Because they're, they're hungry. And so before you're such a good preacher, you might want to be, do a good work. And then once, the, once you do that good work, now all of a sudden they're open because the pressure of being hungry is gone. And now you can give them opportunity to meet Jesus. And so sometimes we just have to be good workers rather than good preachers. We have to be able to give those people what's good that's in the palm of our hand. And then we can give them opportunity. Because we are, it is wise to win souls. That's what it says, Proverbs 11.30. He who wins souls is wise. So it's wise to win souls. If you want to be spiritual, win souls. Being spiritual is not about gold dust and feathers falling from the ceiling. Being spiritual is getting people saved. It's introducing people to the spirit of God. That's what being spiritual is. You'll never be more spiritual than when you're praying the salvation prayer with somebody. The reason we put on Twisted, our Christmas production, is so that you can have an opportunity to give your friends an opportunity to meet Jesus. That's it. We will be entertained. It will be phenomenal. But that's not the reason why we put it on. We are trying to go. We are trying to give opportunity to, for people to meet Jesus. Now, um, I'm coaching my son's soccer team. We just ended yesterday with a loss. Um, but that's okay. It was a good season. And, uh, 
And so I'm coaching um, soccer for two reasons. Number one is to be involved in my son's lives and to be a part of what they're doing. Number two is to expose myself to people that don't go to this church. So um, I live in East County, so most of those people out there don't go to this church, even though it's only 15 minutes away. Some of you think it's really far. It's only 15 minutes away. It's 52. Boom, I'm here. Um, so, but, but my wife and I, we bought, we bought 12 Twisted tickets for all the parents of all the kids on our team. And we invited them all yesterday at the end of the year party. We're trying to give them an opportunity to meet Jesus. And I believe as a church, you know, uh, Twisted, it's, there's six productions, okay? Every single production should be jam-packed because every single production, last year we had over 100 people saved in four or five um, services. That was just, 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 you know, last year. That, that, and, and now it's, we're bigger church. We have more people. We're, we've doubled in size. And this year we should, we should have six services filled, a couple of hundred people getting saved. I want to challenge each and every one of you to buy a ticket. They're only 5 10 or $15. Tickets for your friends and family members to give them an opportunity to get saved. It's so, it's such, if you buy it, it's hard for them to say no. So I purposely said, we bought you two tickets for opening night at our Twisted production, which is an 80s musical. You're going to love it. Like it. And all of them are coming. They're going to be sitting in that first row back there if you guys want to say hi. Because I went online and bought the tickets. But that, that's, that's what we need to do. We need to go. We need to give opportunity. And, and everybody, everybody needs that opportunity. Even wealthy people. We focus a lot on, on, on the poor and, and needy, but also... You know, Paul said, I've become all things to all people that I might save some. We need to be able to relate to the people that are wealthy and influential. Because what I found about those people is they're the same as us. They have the same struggles. They face the same issues of marriage problems, kid problems, financial pressure, even though they might not, like, have pressure to pay their bills. They might have pressure to pay all their employees' bills. There, there, is, there, there is pressure there. But, but I think as Christians, we've, we've kind of relegated just, just to reach the poor. And we say, you know what, rich men, it's, it's harder for them to know Christ. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And so we just... You know, we just step back. But the end of that verse says, but all things are possible with God. So it's not impossible for them to get saved. It's just a little bit harder. We just have, a, have to have a little more confidence. We just have to be a little bit bolder um, and understand that they are just like us. I was watching um, CNBC the other day, and there's a guy named Jack Ma. And he is the founder of Alibaba, which is like a Chinese Amazon. This guy is 50 years old. He's married. He's got two kids. He is the hottest thing going in the financial world right now. His company exploded. They went public about a month ago, and it's just exploding. He's worth $30 billion, the 18th richest person in the world, Jack Ma. And they're asking him about his, um, his philosophy. And they said, what's your philosophy in business? And he said, number one, I need to take care of my customers. So customer service is number one. That's my, that's my uh, initial, and, you know, spend, spends money on his employees and resources them so that they could be successful in customer service, creating a great culture. The second thing he says is he's responsible for his society. So he says that business people, marketplace people, are, should be responsible for bringing solutions and resources to their city. This guy is, uh, is making a difference. This third thing is his shareholders. So those are the three things. That's his business philosophy. And, and as, as rich as he is, as wealthy as he is, as influential as he is, this guy has the opportunity to disciple Asia himself. He is the hottest thing going. 
And they asked him this. They said, Jack, after all this success, after everything that you've gone through, are you happy? And he said, honestly, I'm not. I'm not happy. There's so much pressure on me financially. There's so many people want things from me right now. Everybody's calling me. Everybody wants a piece of me. I don't know who my friends are. He goes, I'm having more trouble deciding who to give this money away to philanthropically. than it, it It's harder to give it away than it was to make it. He's stressed out. And he's worth $30 billion. The Bible says, uh, beloved, I pray that you would prosper in all things just as your soul prospers. His soul is not prospering. His, his soul needs an introduction to Jesus Christ. Just think, if someone got, I, by that statement, I assume that he's not saved. Very high moral value. But, but if, if he was saved, he would, he would be thanking God. He would be, but he's saying, you know, and, and in China, you know, it's not a very Christian country. So I'm assuming he's not saved. But let's imagine that someone was bold enough to introduce him to Jesus, to give him an opportunity to meet God. Let's imagine that somebody that's worth $30 billion and, and, and the talk of the town, the talk of the world right now, let's imagine he was on fire for Christ. How much impact could he have? How much impact could he have? That's why we have Pathfinders, because we bring in influential people, wealthy people, and people on their way to influence and wealth, gather them together in one setting so that we can see that, yeah, these influential people, they're normal people. I could do what they can do. We start to get comfortable with them, and we understand that those are the people that can disciple entire nations. So we need to be bold enough to reach out. And I know I'm laboring on this, but I don't hear it preached. So, so here's what we say as Christians. We, we say the Proverbs 13:22 prayer. God, I pray that the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. I declare a transfer of wealth. And we, we just think that, like, God's going to, like, magically transfer the wealth of that person because he's not a Christian to us. God spoke to me about this verse a couple years ago, and this is where I, this all comes from. And he said, why don't you just go get the wealthy person saved so that their money becomes righteous instead of being intimidated by it? Because those are the people that we need in the kingdom of God. Those are the people that we are trying to reach and that we have to reach. Romans 1.16, this is why you don't have to be intimidated by anybody, rich, poor, color, whatever. It says for Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul speaking. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Remember, the horse is prepared for the day of battle but deliverances of the Lord. This is saying all we got to do is be prepared with the gospel because it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. All we have to do is get people in front of the gospel, whether that's you sharing the gospel or you bringing them here where the gospel is going to be shared each and every week because that's the power. That's the changing power. That's the salvation that only God can bring. You don't have to be nervous or intimidated on sharing the gospel because the gospel is what's powerful, not you and I. The gospel is what brings people to Christ, not you or I. Only God can do the delivering, but we got to do our part. We got to be prepared for that day of battle. The third thing, my third favorite proverb, uh, my third point is speak life. I believe we can dictate our life and our future by our words. And you can tell your future what it's going to look like, and you can confirm your calling by your words. Proverbs 18 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, if you've been going to this church for any amount of time, this is not like blowing you away. Speak life. You know, we have the most encouraging pastor on planet Earth, Pastor Jurgen. So 
speak life is not something new to us. But, but I want to go deeper because I, every time that I hear a message on, on, speaking, on speaking life, on speaking the word of God, it, it challenges me again and again and again. This is an area where God is rocking me right here uh, at this moment. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That is actually a lie. Names will hurt you. Sticks and stones might hurt you, especially if your name is Goliath and you took one in the temple from David. But names are powerful. What we say is powerful. And the reason it says death and then life is because it's so easy to talk depression, to talk death, to talk condemnation, to talk judgment, to talk depressed things, to talk death. It's easier to do that. It wasn't natural for me to, to be an encouraging person or to speak life or to speak the word of God, especially when I didn't know the word of God. But as we get to know the word of God, as we get around people that are here at C3, we begin to speak life. And I'm telling you, your future can be dictated by the words that come out of your mouth. John 6, 63 says, it is the spirit, this is Jesus, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. They are spirit and they are life. I'm telling you, if we can just learn the word of God, that is a great place to start. If you don't know what speaking life is, just start to speak the Bible. Because the Bible is the word of God, is Jesus, written down. And so as we speak that, life is injected into every situation of your life. I have a, a deal that I've been working on for about six years. And um, it is a deal that I did without the counsel of my wife stupid. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and, and I didn't take that wisdom, but, but I got into this deal, and so now, now I'm in it. So now, for the last six years, I have been praying, prophesying deliverance. I've been trying to do my part so that God can deliver me from this deal, and, uh, and I've been, but, but for the first about four years, I was talking to one of my partners who all he did was speak death about it. All he did was, oh, man, they're going to rip us off. Oh, man, oh, you know, it's never going to happen. The, you know, the government's never going to do this, the, whatever. The contract's never going to go through. Somebody's going to, you know, lie to us. Somebody's going to come and, and try to steal. And, and so that's all he would say. And he would constantly put these thoughts in my head. And so while I'm over there praying and believing God that this thing's going to go through, then I have him chirping in my ear, death. And the Bible says that double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So I started to question what I was praying for. In other words, I wasn't really believing what I was praying for. Well, over the last two years, uh, we've got closer and closer and closer to deliverance. And I'm almost out of this thing, and I will be by the end of this year in the name of Jesus. But it was because I cut him off, and I started to be able to believe what I was saying. Because if you can, if you can put, believe what you say, eternal power is the result. Romans 10, 9 and 10, let me tell you, let me show you, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Eternal power, an eternal shift from eternal life without God to eternal life with God if you confess what you believe. So here's what we have to do. Once I started to actually get rid of him and believe what I was saying, we started moving closer to the end of this thing. And you might be saying, well, I'm confessing this stuff. I'm being positive. I'm confessing the word of God, but I don't actually believe it yet. Can I encourage you? Keep going. Keep confessing the word of God. Keep confessing life because here's the thing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the, uh, you hear what you say. 
You can hear what you say. So the more you say it, I'm telling you, you're going to start to believe it. And once you start to believe what you're saying, watch out. Eternal power coming upon you and in your life. And you can do it the other way. You can do it the other way. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you believe something that is that is lines up with the word of God, let it come out of your mouth. Let it come out of your mouth. And I'm telling you, it'll start to shift things. Just believing it isn't, isn't enough. You got to confess it. You got to confess it. If, it's, if you believe things that don't line up with this, zip it. Don't say it. Just don't say it. Because when you say it, there's agreement between what you're saying and your heart, and then there's power. So make sure that you only confess what you believe that's good stuff. Amen. And the last thing on this, and this is what God has been rocking me about. So a couple of, a couple of um, about a month ago, I'm in my garage and I'm praying. And God stops me and says, do you really know how powerful your words are? And he, and he flashes me this picture of, of God in the beginning. And I, and I shared a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago. But he said, in the beginning was God. He created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And the, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters or moving. And then God said, let there be light. And light was. There was no sun at that time. So the picture that I got while I was praying was that the Holy Spirit actually executed the word that God spoke. So God spoke it. The Holy Spirit agreed and made it happen. And so that was, that was powerful. I was just like kind of stunned and pondered that thought for a long time. And, and like are my words as powerful as God's words were in the beginning? Because God used his words to create before he used them to communicate. And so he used them to create. And so, and so the spirit of God was creating something out of nothing in the beginning. So fast forward about a week ago, I'm driving into work, and then all of a sudden, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to process that thought. And the band can come up if they're not already on their way. I'm trying to process that thought of my words and the Holy Spirit being able to execute what I'm saying. And God said, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus did before he died. Check this out in Mark 10, 33 and 34. This is Jesus' third time predicting his death and resurrection. It says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, they will scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So Jesus predicts his death and then he prophesies his resurrection. He prophesies life. Now who raised Jesus from the dead? The Spirit of God did. The Bible says in, in Romans 8:11, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, Jesus spoke life. And the Holy Spirit executed his word and raised him from the dead. You and I can prophesy life. And the Holy Spirit, the same one that rose Jesus from the dead, the same one that created something from nothing in the beginning, can execute the words that you speak in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your business, in your health. But we just need to speak life. That's why, that's why in, at the end of Mark 16, the Bible says that the disciples were going out. And, the, and, and it says that the Lord was working with his word with accompanying signs. 
In other words, God was backing his word with signs, I believe, being carried out by the Holy Spirit. If you want the Holy Spirit to give you signs in your life, start to speak life into those areas that are dead. Start to speak and believe that the Holy Spirit's going to execute the words that you're saying. And he will give you signs that your marriage is going to get better. He will give you signs that your kids are going to come back to Christ. He will give you signs that your business is going to grow despite. And then he'll start to give you wonders. He'll start to blow your mind. If we can just dictate our future by the words that we speak and believe that the Holy Spirit's going to execute on our behalf, just like he did in the beginning, just like he did when he raised Jesus from the dead. He can do the same thing for those areas of your life that are dead. Come on, did you catch this? I'm telling you, it's common sense to speak life. But when you put this behind it, I'm telling you, all of a sudden it gets heavy. It gets weighty. All of a sudden, you're not going to be talking condemnation and doubt and fear and I'm tired, I'm sick, I'm overwhelmed. You're not going to be talking like that. You're going to be talking like, no, I'm an overcomer. No, I am blessed. I am prosperous. I'm telling you, Ashley and Kenny didn't get a brand new house, their first house, that they're going to spend Christmas in this year. By not speaking faith and hope and prosperity, even in situations where they don't even have family members that own a house, but they, moving away from home, are now able to buy a house. It's because they're, they're speaking into their future, and the Holy Spirit wants to act on your behalf. He will back up his word. All we got to do is speak it. Amen? Amen. Let's all close our eyes, bow our heads.